Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. As we wrap up another week of bringing clarity to the chaos, we welcome Larry Stam back to the program, and David Bay continues to lay out why he thinks there are forces determined to bring down Saudi Arabia. Larry Stam has a brand new book coming out next month, Jewish Roots of Christianity. In Jewish Roots of Christianity, Larry Stamm, a first-generation Holocaust survivor and Jewish follower of Jesus, examines the religion of the Old Testament and in its ultimate fulfillment in the Messianic hope, as detailed in page after page of the New Testament. Be listening for your opportunity to get Jewish Roots of Christianity by Larry Stamm. Larry Stamm gives a sneak peek at his new book with today's teaching, Unpacking the Jewish Roots of Christianity. Shalom, friends. Larry Stam here. So glad you are joining us as we continue our study on the Jewish roots of Christianity. In this study, we are going to begin unpacking the gospel message itself, the most important thing. And as we make connections between the Old Testament and New Testament, I want to remind us that we started with a pithy catchphrase that I want us to repeat as we begin our time unpacking the gospel message, and it's this. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. As we do this biblical survey of redemptive history from Genesis to Revelation, we are connecting the dots between the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, and the Brit Chadashah, the New Covenant Scriptures, otherwise known to us as Christians, as the New Testament. Today, we are going to unpack the gospel message specifically, and we begin with the end in mind. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, the Apostle Paul wrote these words which provide us the foundation of the gospel message. He wrote, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. The first question I want to ask, and by the way, if you have a Bible handy, please get it. We are going to open up the Word of God, and the first place you can turn is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. But as we unpack these two verses from 1 Corinthians 15, I'll repeat them, and then I want to ask a question. This is the foundation of the gospel message. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. The question is this, of what Scriptures was the Apostle Paul referring? If you said the Old Testament, you are correct. In the first century, when Paul was penning these words to the church in Corinth, the only Bible they had was the Jewish Scriptures, otherwise known to us as the Old Testament. The three main components of the gospel message I want us to unpack in this teaching are these. Substitutionary atonement, he died for our sins. Resurrection, he rose again the third day. And then, according to the Scriptures, Those are the three main components of the gospel found in this passage, substitutionary atonement, resurrection, and the scriptures. So we should be able to find, therefore, this concept of substitutionary atonement and resurrection in the Old Testament, and that's exactly what we're going to do in just a moment. But first, I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you have one, to Luke chapter 24. 
And I want to read several verses from Luke 24, beginning in verse 21 to verse 27. And I want you to see here the the glorified Jesus. This is post-resurrection, and he's making an appearance to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, Cleopas and the other disciple. And if you remember the story as we set it up, they're on the road. Jesus shows up and joins them. His identity is veiled in some way, shape, or form. They don't know who he is, and they strike up a conversation. And then they say to Jesus, and Jesus says to them in verse 17 of Luke 24, What manner of communications are these that ye have one to another as ye walk and are sad? And I'm reading now in Luke 24, verse 18. I want to provide some context for this teaching point. Luke 24, 18. And the one of them whose name was Cleopas answering said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem, and hast not known the things which are come to pass in these days? And Jesus says unto them, What things? Ironically, Jesus is the only one in Jerusalem who knows what is actually going on. Verse 19, he says to them, What things are you speaking about? And they said unto him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. Yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished, which were early at the sepulcher. In verse 23, we continue in Luke 24. And when they had found not his body, they came, saying that they had also seen a vision of angels, which said that he was alive. And certain of them which were with us went to the sepulcher and found that even so, as the women had said, but him they saw not. Now Jesus will rebuke them. And he says in verse 25 of Luke chapter 24, Then he said unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ or Messiah to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Verse 27 is the key verse in this entire passage as we begin unpacking the gospel in the Old Testament. In verse 27 of Luke 24, Jesus says to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus these words, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Did you get that? Luke 24, verse 27, Jesus says to them in witnessing to them, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Again, we have to ask the question of what scriptures is Jesus referring? The Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. So there's a background we see Jesus witnessing from the Hebrew Scriptures themselves. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn with me now to Genesis chapter 3. The Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve have fallen. They have rebelled against God. They have partaken of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they attempt to cover their sin and their shame in one way. That way is not acceptable to God. And then we find later in Genesis chapter 3, the Lord himself providing them an acceptable covering for sin. Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, 
after they had eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the word of God says in Genesis 3:7, And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons, or girding coverings. So here we see Adam and Eve's attempt to cover their sin and shame. Was it an acceptable covering for their sin? It actually happened literally as the scripture states, but there's also a powerful symbol found here. Their attempt to cover their sin and shame was unacceptable in God's eyes. And notice what the Lord does for them later in Genesis chapter 3. We're reading now in verse 21 of Genesis 3. The word of God says, Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. So God makes tunics of skins and clothe them. And we have to ask of the text of where did the skins come from? Friends, these are the skins of animals, innocent animals whose blood was shed. So Adam and Eve's attempt to cover their sin and shame, not acceptable in God's eyes. God had to provide Jehovah Jireh. Sometimes we sing that song around the campfire, Jehovah Jireh, my God shall provide all my needs. And we see a powerful difference between the attempt of man to deal with his sin versus the provision of God in appropriately dealing with that sin. For us as witnesses of Jesus, there's a powerful lesson for us as we think about evangelism and the gospel message itself. In Genesis 3-7, we find them covering their sin and shame with aprons or fig leaves. It was not acceptable to God. In fact, there are only two kinds of religion in the world today. There is the religion of man and there is the religion of God. There is the religion of man that is based upon human accomplishment, achievement, and there is the religion of the Bible that teaches that he did it all on the cross, that the blood of Christ not only covers our sin, but cleanses us from all sin. All world religions teach that we get to heaven, paradise, nirvana based upon this do. Whereas biblical faith is predicated solely upon this reality, this happened. Jesus paid our sin debt in full at the cross. That's why he said while hanging on a Roman cross, it is finished. And so we see here at the beginning of the Bible itself in Genesis chapter 3, man's attempts to deal with his sin and shame not acceptable to God. The Lord must provide, and he did provide a covering for Adam and Eve. In fact, Old Testament covering for sin was temporary. And we find in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, these words, and the power of the blood and the altar of sacrifice that was the means of atoning for sin in the Hebrew scriptures. Leviticus 17, verse 11 says, I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. So the life is in the blood, and it's through the shedding of blood and the faith in God's provision that was the means of forgiveness found in the Hebrew Scriptures. We also connect the dots with the New Testament book of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, where the Word of God says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness of sin. Now I want us to understand that there are three things that were accomplished 
in the Old Testament ritual sacrifice that I want you to understand. Number one, we see identification. Number two, we see substitution. Um, Number three, we see the exchange of life. Three things accomplished in the Old Testament ritual sacrifice. Number one, identification. The offer and the offering are identified as one. That's why the priest would take the lamb, the bull, the goat, the animal to be sacrificed and literally place his hand on the animal. Then we have substitution. The offering is on behalf of the offerer. So we see the offering is on behalf of the offerer. So the one offering the sacrifice, the one who is guilty, is not actually the one who experiences that death, that shedding of blood. And that points to the third thing accomplished in the Old Testament ritual sacrifice was the exchange of life in that the offering dies, the offerer lives. It's a powerful picture of what we would find ultimately in Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, our great high priest. So those three things accomplished in the Old Testament ritual sacrifice, identification, substitution, and the exchange of life, all are types or foreshadowings of the ultimate sacrifice, the sacrifice of Christ on behalf of mankind for the forgiveness of sins and the gift of abundant and eternal life. Now, the Old Testament sacrifices compared to Messiah's sacrifice, you can do a reading and a study of the book of Exodus, but I'll just lay down some basic principles for the relationship between Old Testament sacrifices compared to the sacrifice of Jesus, our Messiah and Lord. Old Testament sacrifices were temporary. They were coverings for sin. That's why the Israelites had to shed blood all the time. Millions and millions of gallons of blood of the bulls, lambs, and goats were sacrificed because, again, those sacrifices covered for sin. The sacrifice of Christ cleanses us from all sin, and his one-time atoning sacrifice cleanses us from all sin, past, present, and future, for those who put our trust in him. And we also find Old Testament promises regarding sacrifice were obsolete. We find in the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews talks about better sacrifices and a better covenant, the new covenant, which we're going to talk about as well. Old Testament sacrifices were simply a shadow of the reality of the substance who is Christ himself in the new covenant scriptures. And then we find that the Old Testament priesthood was sinful human beings who had to be cleansed and be forgiven of their own sins. So the priesthood, though they were appointed by God for this special service, they still were simply human beings. We, in the new covenant, with Jesus being our great high priest, his priesthood is perfect because our great high priest, Jesus, is perfect. He is sinless. And we can talk about the fact of daily sacrifices which were offered in the Old Testament. And we said that Jesus' sacrifice was a one-time-for-all atoning sacrifice. Okay, The Old Testament sacrificial system was based upon animal sacrifices. We see in the New Covenant Scriptures simply the sacrifice of God's Son was sufficient. In other words, it was the propitiation for our sin. It satisfied God's demand judgment, and wrath upon sin that all of us deserve, 
but those of us who know Christ and who have put our trust in Christ don't experience because of the grace and mercy of our living God. And then Old Testament sacrifices, as I mentioned, were ongoing. The sacrifice of Christ is a one-time-for-all atoning sacrifice. Therefore, sacrifices in the new covenant economy, which we as the church of God are living in, are no longer needed. So I commend you to a further study of the book of Leviticus and the book of Hebrews that will compare and contrast Old Testament sacrifices compared to the sacrifice of Messiah. Now, we talked about the sacrificial system. We talk about substitutionary atonement. Now I want to briefly talk about resurrection. And resurrection is found in many places in the Hebrew Scriptures, In Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, the Word of God says, At that time Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time, and at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. David wrote in Psalm 16:10, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. And finally, in our time today, we find Job in verses 25 and 26 of chapter 19. Job wrote these words, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh... I shall see God. So here are just a few scriptures of resurrection in the Old Testament. I would commend you if you have a pencil or paper, you want to write down several others. You could write down Hosea 6.2. You could write down Isaiah 26.19, Ezekiel 37.14, Psalm 49 verse 15, and Hosea chapter 13 verse 14. In our next program, we are going to continue to unpack both these concepts of substitutionary atonement and resurrection according to the scriptures as we continue to study the gospel in the Old Testament. So until next time, friends, the Lord richly bless you and keep you. Shalom. You can now listen to insightful interviews, current events from a biblical perspective, and prophecy that helps you make sense of the nonsense. Subscribe today to both of our podcasts, Watchmen on the Wall and In the Beacon's Light. Subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. David Bay is here, continuing to unpack why he believes there are forces determined to bring down Saudi Arabia. Just a few days ago, the United States military completed the Biden administration-ordered removal of all advanced missile defense systems and Patriot batteries from Saudi Arabia. Now, this removal came even when the Saudi Arabian nation was facing continued air attacks from Yemen's Houthi rebels. And despite the increased tensions in the Middle East over the botched, chaotic withdrawal of United States troops from Afghanistan, including their last-minute evacuations from Kabul's besieged international airport. My guest again today is David Bay, the director of Cutting Edge Ministries. 
David has produced a very revealing DVD titled Bringing Saudi Arabia Down. David, thanks for being on with me today. Thank you again, my friend. Appreciate it. Now, last time we spoke about a conspiracy to overthrow the House of Saud, and in case someone missed that, would you quickly review what we talked about last time? In 2006, the Pentagon, in one of their magazines, published a new map of the Middle East, and it shows a complete realignment of the Middle East. Specifically, it shows that the House of Saudi Arabia is going to be emasculated and just humiliated. She's going to lose her oil ports. She's going to lose her oil facilities. She's going to lose control of the Islamic sacred places, Medina and Mecca. And by the way, the map indicates that the country that will have control over the Islamic sacred places will be Iran. That's very interesting. That'll upset the Sunni Shia apple card, wouldn't it? Yes. We saw this happening during the conduct of the Iraq war. We covered it on a daily basis. We caught a lot of news. You know, we post between 30 and 70 articles a day. And we catch a lot of news that most people miss. And the news that President Bush was slowly tilting American support away from Sunni Saudi Arabia and toward Shiite Iran was very obvious once you watch the news for maybe a year, okay? It was very obvious that we were tilting toward Shiite Iran. Even during the Trump years, we were really cool toward Saudi Arabia. And it was under Trump that we really increased our output of oil, which is necessary if you're going to bring Saudi Arabia down. You have to be able, at a moment's notice, to replace that oil, 12 million barrels a day, that Saudi Arabia is pumping. And the world can do it now. They can do it. We spoke last time about two different types of nations, the functioning core, which are the nations that are already functioning in the new global system, or those nations that are clearly and firmly going in that direction. Second, there are the non-integrating gap nations who are not functioning in the global system and who are not likely to do so in the foreseeable future. Help bring us up to speed on that. That's to try to get the world set for the Antichrist cashless society, correct? Yes. It all depends on how advanced your economy is. This turns out to be an economic issue. But to boot kick, that's their term, boot kick these non-integrating nations into establishing an economy that is cashless, you're going to have to invade some, overthrow by internal dissent some, and force others by economic sanctions to go to a cashless economy. And surprisingly, A lot of the Islamic nations are resisting this call to move to cashless. And I was reading the other day that the United States' war against Iraq and Afghanistan together has killed 930,000 civilians, and it's cost us $8 trillion. That's quite a commitment on the part of the West to remove these dictators. It turns out that the dictators are the reason why they're not moving more quickly to a cashless economy. Well, isn't this all leading to the ten-nation confederacy that is prophesied in the book of Daniel? Yeah, the book of Daniel, Daniel 7, 7 to 8, shows that the world is reorganized into ten supernations, each one with a leader. After Daniel sees those ten nations reorganized, then suddenly an eleventh horn appears, and that's Antichrist. 
If you're just joining us today, my guest is David Bay, the director of Cutting Edge Ministries. David has a eye-opening DVD titled Bringing Saudi Arabia Down that is available at our website, swrc.com, or you can get a copy by calling 1-800-652-1144. Now, David, I understand that Saudi Arabia has a very brutal system of justice. In fact, they have a lot in common with ISIS. Isn't that right? They are terrible. Yes, they have a repressive system uh, against their own people internally that is shocking. I mean, they'll chop your hand off if you're convicted of stealing. They'll lop your head off for you for a number of reasons. And God help you if you're a woman and you're caught outside without the traditional burqa and without the accompaniment of a man. It's brutal. I'm not advocating for Saudi Arabia here at all. But the fact is... They are a weak nation. Their soldiers are not particularly well-motivated, and they will not be very formidable at all when Iran attacks. And I think Iran will attack from Yemen. They'll come through Yemen and up that way. That approach will put them in close proximity to Mecca and Medina, which has got to be their coveted goal. Well, that was my next question. Now, how does the plan to bring Saudi Arabia down contend with the fact that Mecca and Medina, Islam's two holiest sites, are located in the country? I'm convinced that Iran has built up a pretty good fighting force, but you just don't see them in their full capacity yet among the Yemenis, the young Mahoudis. An army will spring up out of seemingly nowhere out of Yemen and push up northward into Saudi Arabia and head directly for Medina and Mecca. Here's another fact. Once this radical change of the Middle East map was made public, Saudi Arabia went on an arms-buying spree. I mean, she was buying F-22s and wanting to buy F-35s and the latest tanks and the latest artillery, etc., 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 but when she went to use it, she discovered she had missed something. She did not provide nearly enough dollars to buy the old-fashioned truck. They don't have the capability of resupplying in a modern war. And the modern army goes through a lot of munitions. They don't have enough trucks. It was evidently more prestigious to buy some more F-22 Raptors fighter planes than to buy some trucks. If you can't have the trucks to move the food and the bullets to feed and take care of the soldiers, your army's not going to function, are they? That's why just weeks into their campaign against the Houthis, Saudi Arabia was begging her Arab neighbors to help her with troops and trucks. Of course, Iran knows all this. I've been watching, and I haven't seen any articles where Saudi Arabia is buying some lowly trucks. They are going to have a problem, but real quick, Saudi Arabia will not be a staunch opponent. In fact, I think she's going to be a pretty easy pushover. I've been talking today with David Bay, the director of Cutting Edge Ministries, about the DVD titled Bringing Saudi Arabia Down, which is available at our website, swrc.com, or you can get a copy by calling 1-800-652-1144. David, thanks again for being on The Watchman on the Wall. Thank you very much for having me. Today in the Resource Center, we have David Bay's DVD, Bringing Saudi Arabia Down. You'll be absolutely shocked to learn how David Bay believes the elite will overthrow Saudi Arabia. Get your copy of Bringing Down Saudi Arabia for a gift of $20 or more when you call 1-800-652-1144 or order online, swrc.com.
Also remember to get this month's thank you gift, God's Promise Box, when you call 1-800-652-1144. When you purchase a book or DVD, you're helping us spread the truth that God is still on the throne and prayer changes things. Thank you. Watchman on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and is supported by faithful listeners like you. Visit swrc.com.